It's an appropriate song to sing, Let All Things Their Creator Bless, before we uh, get into Genesis chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1, and into chapter 2. Um, I'm not going to read the entire text this morning. I've wrestled back and forth with whether to do this, but um, I, uh, I'll let you go back and read the whole thing on your own um, five times this afternoon. So that'll, that'll uh, make up for me not reading it fully. We'll read pieces of it this morning, but... Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. Most of you are probably aware uh, that just a few weeks ago, the cathedral uh, Notre Dame, let me not say that too many times. I've been nervous about trying to pronounce it. Um, it's French, and in where I'm from, you say Notre Dame. <laughs> but I know that's not right and is a travesty to pronounce it that way. So um, I will uh, let Jacqueline correct my pronunciation later on. Um, but most of you are aware that the cathedral uh, there in Paris caught fire a few weeks ago and was pretty badly damaged. Um, and, you know, most of us don't think about that cathedral very often, but when it came to our attention, maybe you read a little bit on the cathedral, looked it up. I know I certainly did. Construction on the cathedral began in the year 1160, which is just unreal <laughs> that it's that old. Um, and I'm not going to talk to you in great detail about the cathedral and what's there and all of that, but uh, you can go online and read about some of the architectural principles that were used in the construction of the cathedral. Things like flying buttresses, which is just fun to say, um, and, uh, <laughs> and pretty interesting to understand what's actually going on when they put those in place. Uh, but the, the principles that were used in constructing this uh, and the, the detail of what went into this have kept it standing and steady for 900 years. Um, I read one piece that said that uh, they think the roof has not moved at all, even a millimeter in 800 years. Of course, they were building it over the course of about 100 years, but once they got the final pieces in place on the top, they don't think it has shifted in 800 years, which is astounding. And it's, it's amazing to me, just as an aside here, that we sometimes think we are brighter and more intellectually brilliant than people that lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. <laughs> But the formal study of architecture uh, as a discipline goes back at least to the time of Jesus. Uh, they think the first book that was written on architecture as a study was written during the first century, and it was written by a Roman architect named Vitruvius. He wrote a book on the topic, and in his book, he gave three guiding principles that every building should have. Each, each work of architecture should seek to fulfill these three principles as best it could. And I think you can see these three principles very clearly in the cathedral at Notre Dame. The principles are, first, durability. Clearly you can see that. The building should stand up robustly and remain, remain in good condition, so durability. The next principle is utility. When you're building something, it should be, the building should be suitable for the purpose for which it was created, for the purpose for which it will be used. You know what you're going to use it for, so the building's architectural design should match that and should complement that. And then the last principle is beauty. 
we're not just out to make things we can use, but he said we want to make things that are beautiful, that are pleasing, aesthetically pleasing to the eye. And at the heart of beauty is the concept of proportionality. The building shouldn't just be with nice colors that match, and it, it shouldn't just be ornamental, have beautiful statues on the outside of it, but it should be proportional to itself. It should be well-divided and well-structured so that the proportions of it are pleasing to the eye. So durability, utility, and beauty are the basic foundational guiding principles of architecture. Now, I've chosen this morning to describe God as a master architect, and the master architect of creation, because I think as you look at creation, certainly you can see those three principles played out in the world around us. And I would even say that without his knowing it, Vitruvius, this architect who wrote these three principles down, I would say that he came up with those three principles because he's made in the image of God, and he looked at the world around him and saw that those were good principles to be applied to human buildings and human creativity. He was just reflecting nature, I think, in many ways as he came up with those principles. But regardless, they're good. So this morning, we, as we come to this passage of Genesis 1, verses 3 to chapter 2 and verse 3, we want to ask the question, what did God build? What sort of an architect is God? And we're not going to walk through every verse of this passage. We're going to kind of look at, at the passage as a whole and ask this question, what did God build? And so this morning, as we do that, we're going to see three fingerprints of the master architect on creation three fingerprints of the master architect on creation, and these three fingerprints continue to shape our lives today. It's not just something that happened then. These continue to shape our lives. It forms, this passage forms the basis of our ongoing existence in the world. It's very, very important and very, very significant for what you and I will do this afternoon and this week and how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world around us. So the first one of these principles of the master architect, his fingerprints, is he created an ordered world. It's, it's proportional. It's well put together. So as we get into this, let me just put something out there right away as we study Genesis chapter 1, all right? This passage is most often discussed in terms of did God create the world in six literal days or did it take much longer? Did he use some sort of theistic evolution as he created the world? People discuss this passage and how it relates to modern scientific analysis of the past. Maybe you think it does match up. Maybe you think it doesn't match up at all with modern scientific analysis and the modern methods we have are inadequate. And so a lot of discussion and energy is placed into those sort of questions, creation, evolution, how long did it take, how old is the earth, all of that. And I, the best understanding, I think, of this passage is that it is six 24-hour literal days. I think that's the best way to take that. I think it makes the most sense of this passage. But let me just say this, if that is all you ever think about when you come to Genesis chapter 1, if that is the the main focus and the only focus of what you're doing here in this passage and how you're reading this text, then I think you've missed the point 
of this passage, and you've missed the intent of what Moses was writing here. If you do that, it's like going to the Notre Dame Cathedral and only viewing one painting in the corner of the cathedral and ignoring the majestic architecture around you and ignoring the rest of what is there and what was put in place there and ignoring the rest of the wonder of what is to be found in that cathedral. You're missing quite a bit. It's important. It's an important discussion. It's significant. But you're missing so much if that's all you ever think about when you come to this passage. So one of the things that we most quickly miss when we only think about evolution and creation is we miss the very ordered nature of this account. I mean, it's amazing how well structured this passage is, how beautifully put together this passage is. Last week, I showed you the overall movement of this passage from general to specific. It's like God is creating a canvas in the first three days, and then he's painting that canvas with beautiful colors and beautiful mountains in the second part. And I'll show you this again. We looked at this last week, but if you aren't here or if you need a reminder, it's intentionally structured with the first three days giving us the background and the next three days filling it out. And day one matches day four, and day two matches day five. He creates water on day two, and then he puts, separates the waters from the, doesn't create water, but he separates the waters above from the waters below. And then on day five, he puts birds in the waters above and fish in the waters below. Dry land and plants on day three, and then animals and man to eat those plants and to inhabit the dry land on day six. And so it's very beautifully put together. It's, it's consistent. So the overall picture is beautiful, but then as you start to look at the details of what God is doing here, you can see even more orderliness to the, the, the account of creation. Look at verses three through five. I'll just read these verses and then I'll go back and show you what's going on here. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So you've got this account of the creation of light and darkness and the naming of these here. And this account in these verses gives us seven aspects of each day of creation. And you will see these repeated throughout the passage. As if I would have read this whole passage this morning, you would no doubt pick up on the cadence and the rhythm of what's happening here. You get used to hearing it by day two or day three. Here are the aspects of this first day that you'll see repeated throughout the rest of the account. First of all, there's an announcement. God said. Second, there's a command. Let there be. Third, there's fulfillment. It was so. God said, and it was so. Fourth, there's the execution of the command. There was light. Fifth, there's approval of what has been done. God saw that it was good. Sixth, there's a naming or a subsequent word where God called. He names the light and the darkness. And then number seven, you get the day number. The evening and the morning were the first day, the second day. And you see that throughout this passage. And as you start reading them, they're not going to always come. Those seven aspects aren't going to always come in the same order. Maybe they'll be switched up a little bit. Maybe something will be added to it. For example, if you looked down to day three, you would notice that there are two acts of creation on day three. 
not only one act of creation. It's the creation of the dry land and the creation of plants and trees on the dry land. Both of those things happen on day three. On day six, you have the creation of animals, but you've also got the creation of mankind on day six. And so there's some variation within the overall structure, but the overall orderliness of this account is very plain, and it sort of hits you in the face as you're reading it. Beyond those aspects, if you look at the first three days, you can see that God is separating one thing from another. He is putting everything in its place. On day one, he separates the light from the darkness. On day two, he separates the waters above from the waters below. On day three, he separates the dry land from the waters. He's putting everything in his place. He's organizing what he has made. He's not just creating and throwing all of this matter out there. He's putting the clothes in the right drawer. He knows where everything goes, and he assigns it a realm in which it is to participate in the ordered universe that he has made. This organization extends beyond the separation to the reproduction of what he has created. As you read down through the days, you see that things replicate after their kind. Look at verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. The plants replicate after their kind. Oak trees drop acorns, and more oak trees come up. There's an orderliness to it. You can expect that this is going to happen because God has created it this way. The same thing is said in verses 21 and 22 of birds and fish. And the same thing is said in verses 24 and 25 of land animals. It's all so well put together and well organized. And it's beautifully written down. One author called this account exalted prose. People are always trying to understand, is this poetry? Is it narrative? You know, like you'd have in maybe the book of 1 Samuel, a story. Exalted prose. It's not poetry, but it's not really normal narrative either. It's so well put together. It's unlike anything else in the entire Old Testament. The order, the structure, the organization of all of it show that God is the universal sovereign and the king and the overseer of everything. But as God makes this orderly created system, we keep hearing this one thing that he says over and over again. When he creates something, when he puts it in its place, when he puts the clothes in the right drawer, when he gives everything its area with which to exist, he separates light from darkness. When he does this, throughout this account, you consistently see God beholding what he has made and saying, this is good. This is good. And he's not just saying that the raw elements that he has created are good. He's not just saying that bird is good that I have made. But what he's saying is the system that 
I have put together. The way everything relates to everything else is good. The structure of all of it is good. In fact, when you get to the very end of the sixth day, you can flip over there if you need to, verse 31. The end of the sixth day, God says, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, and here's how it really should be translated, it was really very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. It's, this is really very good. This word good that is used over and over again here is used throughout the Old Testament. It can mean a number of different things. It can mean happy, beneficial, beautiful, morally righteous. It can mean superior, of superior quality or of ultimate value. And so God creates this system, this structure where everything is woven together, everything is interrelated, everything is beautiful and good and wonderful, and everything is good because it fits and orders itself under God as the creator, as the king, and it orders itself under God for his glory. Everything finds its rightly ordered place under the creator. His proclamation of goodness means that creation is fitting. It's appropriate for the purpose with which he has created it. That bird was made to fly. This morning we had a duck land in our backyard and I immediately let my dog out into the backyard to chase the duck. And it brought great delight to me to watch my dog chase the duck and to watch the duck try to fly away and the dog didn't get the duck. That duck was made to fly, although it doesn't always look like it. Ducks kind of fly with their rear end down and look like they're really struggling to get there, but it's fascinating to watch them. They were made to do that. The dog was made to chase the duck, and it is a delight to watch that happen. It's appropriate. Watching a fish swim in the water is pleasurable. This was made to do this. It's rightly ordered to how it is created. It's fulfilling its creational design when it does this. Now, what's interesting for us here, with this use of the word good here, we typically think of this word good as, a, as an assessment of moral value. Something is good or it's evil. And I think it's appropriate to think of this word both ways here. It's good in the sense that it's fitting, it's structured, it's put together well, it will accomplish the purpose for which it was created. But God also looked at this and said, because it's well-structured, because everything is rightly ordered under me as the creator, it is morally upright and it is morally good. Those two go together and God intends them to go together. What is morally and ethically upright fits with how God has designed things to be. Let me say that again. What is morally and ethically upright fits with how God has designed things to be. You can see this in, I'll give you an example, of marriage. Marriage was created before the fall, 
And God has designed human beings to live in lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. That is the creational design. That is fitting. That is good. It's appropriate to how God has designed it, and it's morally upright. There's a fittingness in living out God's proper ordering of things. And that's important for us to understand because we're going to get there in Genesis chapter 3, jumping ahead a little bit here, but I want to make this point. The essence of sin is in rejecting God's order and design. It's saying, I know better than you. You didn't put this together in the way that I want you to have put it together. What happens at the fall? Adam and Eve reject their role in creation. They certainly reject God's word, but they reject their role as God's people who are responsible to obey him and live under him. They think they know better. They want to be in the place of authority. They want to be in the place of judgment. The Apostle Paul understands this, that natural order of things and Morality, ethically upright, righteousness go together. And he says that rearranging the order of the way God has made things is the fundamental problem for human beings. I want you to listen to this passage from Romans chapter 1 and hear how Paul talks about and understands creation and the creational order and the relationship that has to sin. I'll start in verse 20. For... His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, and here's the twisting of the order, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They flipped everything on its head. They started worshiping images of created things rather than worshiping God as he designed things to be. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he gives an example of what this twisting of the natural order looks like. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You cannot flaunt God's creational design and expect things to go well for you because moral uprightness goes with creational design. God has placed us here and given us limits and placed us properly ordered under him. And we tend to think that limits are bad and constricting. Limits were made to be broken, right? But true freedom, 
True flourishing as a human being is found in living according to the way God has created us. It's in rightly ordering myself under God and his word, as he intended me to. So really, you could say it like this. We are to live in accordance with how things are, (laughs) with how the universe is. Our lives should match the shape of reality as the Bible gives it to us because God has revealed to us how things should be and we live best when we live in accordance with that. And he's revealed the shape of reality to us in a very gracious way. Think about this. Everything that God created was good and he has revealed himself to us and revealed this order to us because of his goodness. He puts limits on us because he is good, not because he's angry and wants to mess around with us. It's so amazing to me that I hear people talk about the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath, an angry God. I mean, if you start out reading in Genesis chapter 1, when you first open your Bible and start reading about the God of the Bible, what do you find? You find a God who is overflowing with goodness and with kindness. And he's creating good and beautiful things, and he's giving them to us as human beings to enjoy if we will submit to his word and follow what he has for us. And so this passage really needs to be the starting point for how we think about God. God of the Bible is a creative, kind, and good God who is also sovereign Overall, And I think you see that goodness most played out here in our second fingerprint of God. So he created an ordered world, and second, he created, he built a ruled world. So the, the ordered nature of reality leads us to acknowledge and understand that God is the king, that he is sovereign over everything. So When we think about him ruling over this ordered world, because he's the the one who ultimately rules, there are two ways that he shows his dominion and his rule over this world. First of all, he exercises his rule through his word, through speaking. If you look down in this passage, you will see 10 times that it says, God said, over and over again. I have them underlined in my Bible, and it's Amazing to see. Over and over again, God said, God said. But I want you to notice here, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way before, but when God speaks, his speaking is the means by which he acts. It's not like he says, let there be light, and then he goes on later to create light. It's not like he says, let the dry land separate, and then he goes on later to actually separate it his hands or whatever. No, his speaking is the means by which he acts. Look at the fourth day, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights. That verse 16, God made That is him speaking. It's not two different actions there. It's the same action. The making is the speaking. 
His word accomplishes the action. We read it this morning, but listen to Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. How does he gather? It's by his word. It's by speaking. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Why should we stand in awe of this God? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Bible tells us that God acts through his spoken word. And so you hear that and you think, well, his word is powerful. And that is true. That's a good application of this. But this tells us more about God's word. What else does his word do? What else does God do in the Bible with his words? He makes covenants with people. He makes promises. He establishes relationships. God's word creates new life. God acts through his word. When you and I speak, we hope that our words will do things, but they don't always. They don't always accomplish what we want them to do, but that is not the case with God at all. He speaks and it is done. Notice what Isaiah says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see this in creation. God's word works and it does not fail. It is authoritative. His word accomplishes his purposes. And so if that is true, then that puts quite a level of importance on our interaction with this book, doesn't it? Because if God said these things and had them written down, and if he is speaking now today through his word, then we better pay careful attention to what he has said. When he makes a proclamation of judgment in his word, you're not going to get around that proclamation of judgment. His word's not going to fail to bring that end about. But when he makes a promise to us in his word, and he says, I will be with you, he's not going to fail to be with us. His word's not going to fall down and fail to accomplish its purposes. It's not going to run out of energy. His word's going to accomplish what he sends it to do. And so we can bank on the promises of God that he has given us in his word. We can bank on them even if we have to wait for their fulfillment. Even if we don't see it right now, you know it's going to happen because God spoke it. And his words are his action. So God rules over his creation through his word, certainly. But the second way here that he rules over his creation is through his people as his people obey his word. You can see this on day six, verse 26. Let me just say before we read this, the entire account builds to a climax on day six. This is the pinnacle of the whole thing. And the creation of man is the high point 
of day six and of the whole creation account. We find something very different here when God goes to create man, don't we? Verse 26, then God said, let us, whoa, that's different. God addresses himself before he creates human beings. Let us make man in our image. Nothing else has been created in God's image and after his likeness. And then here's the task that he gives to man. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then you get this little sliver of poetry here to make sure that you really understand how significant the creation of man in God's image is. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll talk about verses 26 to the end of the chapter in detail next week and the image of God and what that means and who we are as men and women and all of that. We'll come back to that next week. But the result of being made in God's image here is that God gives us the task of having dominion over the world. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with little image bearers and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the emphasis here on the sixth day for the creation of man is that mankind will represent God as image bearers and represent him by having dominion over the earth and ruling over the world and everything in it. And the path to fulfilling that command is as the man and the woman come together and there are little image bearers that spread out over the world, represent God, live under his word, and exercise God's benevolent rule over the earth. So God rules through his word and then through his people who obey his word. But why does he do this? Why create all of this? What's it all leading toward? Why create man and put mankind as his image on the earth, as his representative, and give mankind the command to take dominion over the earth? Why do all of this? That brings us to our third fingerprint. It is a purposeful world. It's an ordered world, a ruled world through men. And I use that word to mean men and women, mankind, not gender exclusive there through men and women, ruling over the world, and lastly, it's a purposeful world. Day six is the culmination of God's creation, but somehow we, I don't know, maybe you don't do this, but we te- I tend to skip day seven because there is a seventh day here. We tend to think God created the world in six 24-hour days, but we forget about the seventh day. God creates man, puts him on the earth, gives him a task to accomplish, but it doesn't end there. There's a seventh day. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. What that really says is he had finished his work. He's not working on the seventh day. He was done with all of his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
So I told you about the structure and pattern of days one through six. Well, that has dramatically changed here, hasn't it? It's very different here. No work is done. Nothing is created on day seven. And this day is very different than all other days because on this day, God gives this day a special blessing. In fact, he calls this day holy, which means to set it apart. This day is unique. It's different than all the other days. Now, when, when you read here that God rested, you know God was not tired, wasn't exhausted, and he flopped down to take a break. That's not what happens here. So, so why the rest? Why does it say that he rested here? Well, sometimes we read our experience into this, and so we tend to rest. You probably will take an afternoon nap today so that you can get up and work tomorrow morning and not be exhausted. We rest so that we can go back to work. But God works in order to rest. Rest is the culmination of his creation. This is the goal. This is the purpose for which he created everything. It's this day. This day is the goal, the, the goal of giving man dominion over the earth. So what's going on here? Well, in the ancient Near East, we've talked quite a bit last week about how this passage really attacks ancient Near Eastern ideas of creation and of, of what it means to be God and the divine. But in the ancient Near East, what would happen is a king would conquer a land and having defeated all his enemies, having brought everything under his control in that land, he would demonstrate his rule and authority over that land by building a temple and then by placing a statue or an image of himself in that temple for his new subjects to worship him in that temple. And as we get into chapter 2 in a couple weeks here, we'll see this in more detail, but I want you to think of God's creation here as a temple, a cosmic temple. And in this temple, God has placed his image. Now, his image is not a lifeless image because he is the living God. And so he has placed a live image of himself in this temple. And this shows his authority and his sovereignty. And so his image is to represent him in this temple and worship and know him. And so the rest here means that all of that has been completed and God plans to dwell in his temple with his people so that they can know him and love him as they fulfilled their service to him in this temple by multiplying and filling the earth and taking dominion over the earth, by ruling the earth. So Adam and Eve were to fill the earth with more image bearers or worshipers of God. They would rule the earth as God's representatives. They would cultivate the earth and make it a suitable dwelling place for God to be with man. That's the goal, for God to dwell with man on the earth as mankind rules under him and represents him. We'll see this in more detail in chapter 2, a couple weeks. But all of this was to start in a garden near Eden and was to spread out over the whole world. That was the goal. That was the mission for Adam and Eve, worldwide dominion under God's rule, dwelling with him and worshiping him in relationship with him. 
Now, of course, sin disrupts that mission, doesn't it? But the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ is that through him, that mission will be accomplished. And if you go to the end of the book, all the way to Revelation 21, you see the culmination of this mission. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see the emphasis there of God coming down and dwelling with his people on earth. This holy city is huge, and it basically overtakes the whole earth. And this is what God wanted from the beginning, for this temple to have a city created around it, covering the whole earth where his people would dwell with him and worship him and honor him as the sovereign ruler of all. And that's the goal. So the creation story is about God establishing his kingdom on earth through his people for his glory and honor. And day seven is God resting and dwelling on earth with those people. You can read about that in Hebrews at a later time. But this morning, to kind of bring all of this to a close, we've talked about some of the fingerprints of God on creation. And when you read this, when you talk about creation, it's very easy to think about creation as something that is obviously in the past. It happened long ago, and it's, it's important to think about. It's important to know that God created the world. It didn't come out of nothing. It didn't evolve to get here. But once I kind of nail those things down, it's not particularly influential in my life this week, this ordered, ruled, and purposeful creation. It really doesn't matter that much. But Scripture does not present creation, the doctrine of creation, as an artifact to be examined. Scripture presents creation as a cathedral in which to worship God. The biblical authors come back to the fact that God created over and over again. And this is a cause for worship, for honor, for praise to him. But they also speak about creation as something that is incredibly helpful in our lives this week. They talk about creation as something that addresses a whole host of human problems and deals with them. One of my favorite passages in the Bible illustrates this in a very powerful way. It's Isaiah chapter 40. You can turn there if you want. If not, I'll read part of it to you. But in Isaiah 40, keep in mind here, this is a passage of comfort to the nation of Israel. And what God is saying to them is, you are going to go into exile, but I will not forsake you. I'm not going to leave you. It's not the end of my relationship with you. You will continue to be my people, and I will bring you back from exile. And so the people must have been wondering, how can we be sure that God has not forgotten us? Because it sure seems like he has. How can we be sure as we go through exile, the Israelites were probably thinking, 
How can we be sure that we won't lose strength and that we won't forget God in the midst of this? How can we be sure that we won't stumble at the difficulty of exile? And the answer, consider that the covenant God of redemption, the one who brought you out of Egypt, is the creator God of the universe. Same person. Listen to the last seven verses, starting in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And notice what what Israel was tempted to say. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And here's what they were tempted to say. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He's forgotten us in exile. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God. The God who has saved you is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding displayed in creation, the orderliness, the magnificence of the system that he has put in place, it is unsearchable. Why does all that matter? Because look what he does for his people. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, and waiting in exile was not easy. (laughs) They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why can God make these promises? Because he's the creator God. Why is that an encouragement to you this week? Because the God who has the strength to put the stars in place, the God who has the ability to carve out the oceans and create the Himalayan mountains is the same God who by his word has promised that he will impart that strength to you and I and whatever it is that you're facing this week. So turn your attention to the Creator and worship and trust Him. Let's pray. God, we are so unworthy of your love and your goodness. But thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. I pray that we would bank on these things and that we would live out of this reality. We would live under your word. We would trust your word. We would consider your word as good as you acting and fulfilling your promises to us. You are to be worshiped and honored and adored because you deserve it. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray, amen.